Uh, I am glad to be with you here this morning. My name is Johnny. I am the campus pastor here. And the number one question people are asking me nowadays is, how was your drive-in? Because I drive in from Waterloo in the morning. And I, I, this is what I say. I have four kids. I have four kids. If you have four kids, you know four and 40 is the same thing. You guys know. Four and 40 is the same thing, okay? So when somebody says, how was your drive? I say, it was two hours of peace is how it was. It was just me, you guys. Just me for two hours. It was delightful is how it was. So I am, I'm ready. I had coffee. I had a whole morning full of screaming, worship music in my car. I'm ready to go here with you guys this morning. I'm excited to be with you. Uh, the church that I served in before I came here to the bridge, I was the youth pastor. And I want to start just by saying I'm so grateful to John Ritchie. He is incredible at what he does. He's our, our youth director here. Yes, Suzanne from the back shouting out for John Ritchie. Uh, he's wonderful. I was the world's worst youth pastor. I was terrible at it. I was not good at it at all. Within like a month, I realized I did not understand middle school students. For those of you in here who are middle school students, you are an enigma wrapped in a mystery. I don't get it. I don't understand the thing, what it is, you know? Um, but I tried. I tried. And one of the things that I tried was I tried every year to take students on a work trip to a ministry uh, in Chicago, and we would take students on this trip, and we would do like sports camps there and do like VBS, and then work on, you know, the, the ministry center's building there in, in Chicago. And um, it was good, but uh, trips like that always cost more money than you think they're going to cost. You know, the ministry center uses those trips as a way to get free labor, but also to, you know, like get some extra cash. And so it was always like a fee to these things. And so we would try to raise money for students. The students always said they didn't have any money, uh, but they always had new shoes, which is weird. But, but anyway, um, so the students said they didn't have any money, so we'd raise some money. And one year I thought, you know what we're going to do is we're going to have a good old-fashioned bake sale. Okay, we're gonna have a bake sale. It's gonna be great. Who doesn't love pies, cakes, and cookies, right? It's gonna be fantastic. So I get the students ready. We're gonna learn personal responsibility and baking. And uh, two days before the bake sale, I get a call uh, from someone in the church, and they are disgruntled. Okay, they're disgruntled with me. And every church has a different kind of uh, culture around this kind of stuff. And these people had grown up in a church where to have a bake sale was a desecration of the church, okay? And they told me on the phone that Jesus would drive me out of the church with a whip if Jesus could see me selling these cakes and pies at the church. So we pivoted, as good pastors are, are, are wont to do, and we did a baked goods giveaway with suggested donation. You see what I'm saying? There was no sale. No money changed hands. We just gave it away and asked for a donation in return. So we figured the whole thing out. It was, it was a wild experience. It was my first experience with disgruntled, not my last experience with disgruntled people, but it was my first experience, really, with disgruntled people. And it was, it was very strange to me that they would know the story that Tara read for us this morning and then, and then apply it to the bake sale situation. So we're going to come back around to John chapter 2 this morning. We're going to come back around to what Jesus accomplished in the temple. I think it's not quite the same as driving out, youth doing a bake sale. Okay, we'll talk about that. But first, I want to start in 1 Corinthians. So the lectionary, I've said this before, we're in this year-long series through the lectionary, and the lectionary gives us, you know, four opportunities for Scripture a week. Um, and so we are going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians and, and finding ourselves mostly in 1 Corinthians, but we are, we're going to circle back to John chapter 2. So this is 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my wife, my wife tells me that I am a picky eater. I think maybe, it, maybe I am. I don't like olives. I don't like mushrooms. And, and I asked her, I said, what, what is like the quintessential picky eater thing that I do? And she says, we go to a nice restaurant and you order a burger. We go to a, and, and there's all these beautiful meals and I order a burger. I just am a simple guy, okay? I like simple things. But there is one thing that I enjoy, a food that I like that goes against the grain, a, a food that I don't think a truly picker, picky eater would enjoy. I like pickled herring. Have you, who has had pickled the delectable? Am I right? Oh my goodness. Here's the thing about pickled herring. It looks disgusting. It, it looks horrendous. It smells disgusting. It doesn't smell, you open it up and you're like, that's rancid. Did that go bad? So it looks bad and it smells bad and it sounds bad. Pickled herring. It doesn't, you don't want that, right? But you put it on a Ritz cracker and you eat it and you are transported to another place completely. It's like heaven on a Ritz cracker. It's delightful. So it's like, it sounds bad and it looks bad, uh, but then you actually have it and it's really, really good. I think these verses from 1 Corinthians are like pickled herring. Follow me, okay? I don't know if you listened, you know, closely while I was reading, but uh, Paul is not filling up his audience with confidence with these words. Paul is writing here to a church that is facing a lot of very real problems. If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you see they have very practical issues that they're facing. In a lot of Paul's letters, it's very theological. And in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's much more like you got to deal with some of these things that you have going on. They have very real problems. And so he opens up, instead of opening up by saying, I've got the answers for you, we're going to figure this thing out together, right? He opens up and basically says, hey, what we believe is pretty crazy. Like seriously, philosophers and scholars, they're not going to approve of this story that we preach. It's not like to them it's going to sound stupid. The stuff I'm saying, it sounds very foolish. This is how Paul decides to open up his letters. What we believe is a little like cuckoo bananas. Like that's what Paul is saying to these people. And they're like, I can just imagine them reading this. Like what is, what is Paul taught? We're facing real problems and this is how he's opening but then Paul, you know, does kind of a Paul move, and he turns the situation upside down, and he says, look, here's the thing. It's crazy, but what we believe is that Christ is the manifestation of God's power. And we believe that God's power 
is beyond compare. And we believe that even the foolishness of God, that is these things that are crazy, the foolishness of God, is more wise than the wisdom of man. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. So Paul is saying, yes, it's crazy, but in some ways that's why we believe it, is because only God can. Only God can make sense of this story. Only God can make sense of this congregation in Corinth being together with the problems that they have, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's not what anybody would uh, make up if they were trying to make something up, but that's exactly why it has power for us, because we have to lean on God when we believe these things. And so Paul sets up the situation between perspectives, the perspective of the world, right, wisdom of the world, and the perspective of God. And Paul's point here is that considered through the perspective of the world, the gospel message is ridiculous. Like the story of a God who has everything, coming to an earth and having nothing, doesn't make any sense. That, That story is a little bit disjointed. The story of a God who cannot die, right, a God who is infinite, choosing to come to earth and become a person for the express purpose of dying doesn't make any sense. The story of a God who could establish a religion of power and prestige, but instead chooses to tell the wealthy to give away their possessions and tell the powerful to lay down their lives doesn't make any sense in the eyes of of the world. In the, in the perspective of so much of the world, the end goal is always influence and affluence. But in the kingdom of God, the last are first, and Jesus tells us that those who would save their life will lose it. It flips the whole situation upside down. This is what Paul is saying. We preach Christ crucified. That is, we preach that the person we follow was murdered and died. And that's why we follow him. It doesn't make any sense. So Paul's saying to the world, this is foolishness, but in the kingdom of God, this is the thing that makes sense. And while Paul wrote these letters a long, long time ago in a church far, far away, there you go, uh, these words are still as sharp today for us as they were when he wrote them. Because the church, us as a group, right, We have always struggled throughout history, not just now, we've always struggled throughout history to not allow ourselves to be shaped by the perspective of the world. It's a difficult thing to be strangers in a strange land. That's what Paul tells us we are, right? We are strangers in a strange land. We are aliens in this place. And so to live out that strangeness, there's always a pressure from the outside that says, don't be so strange, right? conform this message that you've received, Christ crucified, and make it make sense to the world. Make it make sense to a worldly perspective because then you can enjoy the things that come along with making sense to the world. In 313, Constantine comes. uh, This is, you know, I'm not going to get too deep, right? But in 313, Constantine comes to the church and says, I think that it'd be great for the Roman Empire if everybody uh, was part of the church. And they could have said, then it's not really the church anymore, right? Like if, if we like join up with the Roman Empire, it's not going to work the same way. But they didn't, right? Because there's too much, that's so much pressure to stand up against. And we still are doing this today, all the way now through to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The church struggles 
with the reality that the gospel isn't really supposed to make sense. That it's foolishness to the world. That the wisdom of God, the power of God, doesn't make sense from an earthly perspective. The gospel is not supposed to fit in. The gospel can't fit nicely into systems and structures because the gospel is, by its nature, alien to the way that the world works. So, uh, one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, kind of describes the situation like this. He's writing about this passage in 1 Corinthians, and he says it like this. It's very easy for humans, when they believe the gospel, to turn it into a way of inflating their own personal or political power, or showing off how clever they are. But to do so is to undermine the very point of the message. The Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. It's all about God babbling nonsense to a room full of philosophers. It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom. A kingdom in which the weak and the foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and wise, if not more so. It's foolishness to the world. It doesn't make any sense. But the power of Christ crucified is that a new reality has been set up that we are now empowered to live into. And this is the reality where the foolish and the weak are just as welcome as the strong and the wise. And I think this is where our passage this morning brings us back now to John chapter 2. Because the temple in Jesus' time had become exactly what N.T. Wright describes in this quote. This is a place, the temple had become a place for people to inflate their own personal power and their own economic interests. People were using the system, the religious system, to empower themselves and to enrich themselves. The system of worship that God had created, intending it for it to be open to everyone who wanted to show up, had turned into a system that created barriers to worship. So in John 2, Jesus enters the temple, uh, and, uh, which is like the religious and political and economic center of Jewish life. We don't, I've, I've described it before as like Wall Street and the White House and the Vatican all smushed into one thing. We, we don't have like a way to really understand what this represented in the Jewish imagination. But Jesus walks into the temple, which is like the seat of all of everything that happens. And instead of seeing people encountering God, instead of seeing people entering into worship, what he sees is money changers and vendors. And what they're selling primarily is animals for sacrifice, which on its face sounds like not that bad of a thing, right? You show up to the temple, you didn't bring an animal with you, you can buy an animal and you can make a sacrifice. This seems like maybe a good thing. But in the temple, the rates that they were charging for these animals were absolutely exorbitant. And so people have traveled hundreds, even thousands of miles for the Passover festival, the largest festival in the Jewish life. And they want to offer sacrifice, but they can't bring all that stuff with them, right? Like they don't have a U-Haul van that they can take with their animals in it. So they get there and they have to buy these things at ridiculously marked up rates, which now locks out large segments of groups of people who don't have enough resources to do that. And on top of these prices is the money lenders. 
Because the temple won't just accept any money. I mean, come on, that'd be ridiculous, right? So these people who are selling animals, they only accept a certain kind of coin. So if you brought, you know, your dollar bills, you got to change this into euros in order to buy the goats. But the exchange rate is not fair. So again, we're locking people out of worship. People are being, there's barriers being put up between people and God. People are being pushed, pushed farther and farther and farther away from being able to worship God. Jesus walks into this situation and he's upset. He's angry. Because Jesus knows that God does not intend for there to be barriers between us and God. The temple had been set up in a way that made sense from the perspective of the world. If there's a dollar to be made, you should make it, right? It made sense from the perspective of the world, but it wasn't the way God intended it to be. So Jesus drives out the vendors and the money changers and then says something that really drives home the point of the story. This is why we know it's not about bake sales, okay? Like Jesus says this thing that drives home the point of the story. He says, when they say, what is it? you have to give us a sign that says you have the authority to do this. It's a pretty dramatic thing you've done. Why, what gives you the authority? And Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And John is helpful because John uh, doesn't make, like, let us make our own conclusions. John just tells us straight up, like, Jesus was talking about his body, okay? Like, he, John is holding our hand. Like, if you don't get it, this is what's happening. So Jesus is saying, I'm the temple now. I'm the temple the way to God is not to go through this gate and this gate. The temple had a lot of gates. To go this gate and this gate and this gate and have to stand before the Holy of Holies and have to pay the money to get the thing. No. I am the gate. I am the temple. I am the whole thing between people and God. Jesus is now the mediator. And Jesus says this to drive home the idea that there are no barriers for entry into God's kingdom. Jesus is it. And Jesus doesn't stand in the way. Jesus is the way, right? There's no barriers for entry. And this is foolishness to the world. Because the world loves an exclusive club. The world loves... We love nothing more than exclusive clubs. We want to know that, like, I got the shoes before everybody else, right? We, like, we love the exclusive clubs. And so it's foolishness, this idea that everybody is allowed in. But that's the heartbeat of the kingdom. To bring in the poor and the powerless and those at the end of their rope for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you know what? If you're none of those things, if you're rich and powerful, there's room for you too. You don't have to pay more to get in. The only thing is when you're in, you're in with everybody else. That's what it is to be here in the kingdom of God together. Jesus brought freedom from the religious system's of the temple and brought freedom for the whole world. So I told Suzanne before I started preaching, I said, this whole thing makes like a lot of sense in my head, but like I've just run out of sermon here because I couldn't, as much as I tried, I could not write this in a way that makes sense. So I'm going to try. If it doesn't make sense, call me this week and we'll talk through it. It'll be great. Uh, but this is where I see these passages coming together. And even Lent, right? The season of Lent that, that, that we're in. I think these things are all coalescing together. Because we have to choose to live foolishly and freely as citizens of the kingdom of God. This passage is, is interesting because John puts it in chapter 2, uh, but Mark and Luke put it at the end. 
So Mark and Luke drive their, their whole narrative up to this point where Jesus enters Jerusalem, right, and cleanses the temple. And they're trying to put an exclamation point on the story of Jesus. That's why they put it at the end. It's like they're putting an exclamation point. This is who Jesus is and what he does. And John instead puts it at the beginning because John is inviting us to understand the story all the way through. We are choosing in to the story of Jesus who is going to be upsetting to people. We are choosing in to the story of Jesus who does foolish things. I mean, just read John and over and over, it's like Jesus has a chance. Jesus is going to be a superstar. And where did Jesus go? He just walked off, right? Like this is what Jesus does over and over. Lent is the time, the season, where we follow Jesus where we walk alongside Jesus to the foolishness of the cross. What the world sees is the end. What the world sees is the, like, this is where criminals die. And in Lent, we choose, we know that that's how it ends, and we choose to walk it anyway. We choose into the foolishness of the world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And the reason that we choose into it it's because we believe in the freedom and the foolishness of the kingdom of God. We're invited in Lent to be part of this movement of Jesus to where freedom and foolishness is kind of like the final say in how everything goes. And we have to fight against ourselves all along the way. It's ironic because Lent is very religious, and, and so it seems almost like you have to try really hard, but isn't that what they were doing in the temple? But like, when we follow Jesus along this path every day, we get the chance to say again and again and again, this doesn't make any sense. Why does God choose to come to die? That didn't have to be how it went. Why does God choose to come and break down barriers instead of making it harder to access God? Every day we get to choose again, and again and again, the foolishness of God. And then together, and, and this, is, this is really where I want to close today. Together we get the opportunity to create a space of freedom and foolishness. Uh, a space of ridiculous openness, if I might say it that way. A space where we invite everyone in. No, ma no matter where they came from, no matter who they are, right? No matter how much they have or don't have, no matter their backstory, everybody gets invited in because in the kingdom of God, the only barrier is Jesus, and Jesus just kind of like opens the gate. What does it mean to be a people? Personally, sure, but what does it mean to be a people together corporately now? who practice the foolish openness of the kingdom of God. How do, we, how do we structure our lives together so that we're always invitational, that we're always breaking down barriers, that we're always pushing aside the things that are supposed to separate us, the things that the world says have to separate us, that we're always pushing those things aside to make a broader, broader picture of the kingdom of God in our midst together. I have, um, now I'm going to say too much, and I'm sorry, but I have people who call me 
and they call me to say, how are we doing at being, like, justice-oriented? And the question is not, like, political. The question is, like, what are we doing to tell everybody outside of these walls that everybody is welcome inside of these walls? What are we doing to make sure that nobody thinks that this little group has it all figured out and nobody else is allowed into it? And they always call me and they ask me that. And I always say to them, well, you calling me is part of it, right? And then let's do it together. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. Suzanne, this would be great if I had like a, like a thing that I had now told people to go sign up for. I don't, okay? We just got to do this together whenever we can and however we can. Knock down the barriers and live with foolish openness as the people of the kingdom of God who follow the foolishness of the cross because we believe that Jesus has broken the doors wide open for the world. Let's pray. God, I, um, I pray that you can do something with that. That, God, you can um, move in hearts through some pretty muddled words. God, that you could uh, transform our community Slowly, God, tilling the soil of who we are, not because of my oratorial skills, God, but because of the power of Christ crucified, foolishness to the world. God, help us not uh, be so focused on credibility, right? So focus on making sure that people don't think that we're a little sideways in our thinking. God, so focused on, you know, maintaining the status quo around our lives. God, help us not be so focused on that that we forget that what we believe is foolishness and that it only makes sense, God, through the power of your Spirit. That it only makes sense, God, when we're all here together declaring that your kingdom is bigger, greater, higher than, than any other thing that this world tells us. God, go, take us out. Take us out this week in foolish openness. And let this be a place, God, where when people come in, they think, those, those people are weird, but man, we like it. We love you, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your foolishness that is wiser than the wisest wisdom of the world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.